Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. We begin our Advent season with our Advent series, Preparing the Way. In this first sermon, we take a look at the first book of the New Testament and what material is before the coming of Christ. We must take note of two important things, the first two words and who's in Jesus's genealogy. You're listening to Preparing the Way, Matthew, by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. I'll read the first 17 verses. And this is the beginning of a, a new sermon series as we come to Advent. Um, each of the four Gospels will be one sermon from each of the four Gospels because each of the four Gospels doesn't start right away with Jesus. Each of the four Gospels has uh, a little bit before Jesus. Prepare, each of the Gospels have a different way of preparing the way for Jesus. And so we'll look at them in this order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, to see how they anticipate the coming of Christ. And today we start with the genealogy of Matthew. But before I do that, I want to set up the reading a little bit. I wonder how many of you know, and I know some of you do, what a genogram is. Do you know what a genogram is? If you are a therapist or a social worker, you probably know because a genogram is a tool that uh, some therapists and social workers use in their therapy. In fact, I have done a genogram when I was in a minister support group years and years ago. And when we did a genogram, it looked something like this. It was a sort of like a family tree. You start with your grandparents And then from your grandparents, you show all your uncles and aunts and all your cousins and your family and all your siblings. So you sort of map them out and you put all the names on the paper. But it is not just names. It's all the significant family stories, right? So any tragedies or successes or things that are of significance in any of the families, those go on the genogram. If there are any deaths or any divorces, If there are any siblings who are in conflict, that goes on the genogram. So by the time you finish setting it up, you have a picture of the family and then all the stuff in the family. And then what you do is when you go to your session, so when I was there with my minister buddies, each of us would take a turn. And for an hour, we just go through and present and say, here's my family and it's stuff. And it really works well. You really get to know a person. I found that after my colleagues did it, I would look at them and I would say, oh, that explains it. Now I know why you are the way you are, okay? Anyone can do this. You could do this with a good friend and it's revelatory, right? Matthew 1 is like Jesus' genogram. It's always called a genealogy and it is that, but it's more than that. Because behind every single one of the names that I'm about to read, there is a story. And Matthew wrote to Jewish people, right? He wrote to people who knew the Old Testament. So they didn't just know the names. They didn't just hear the names. They knew the stories. So in choosing these names and bringing out these names, Matthew was evoking a whole set of stories that are behind Jesus. This is Jesus' family. Here's who Jesus is. So this morning, I want to go through this genogram so that we can have a deeper understanding of who Jesus came from, and who his father is, and why he sent him. Let's listen to the the genealogy or the genogram of Jesus. 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Notice Matthew doesn't even mention the name Bathsheba, but we all know who that is. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, Abijah, the father of Asa, Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile into Babylon. After the exile into Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Matan, Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abram to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from exile to the Messiah. This is the word of the Lord. I don't have time to say something about every name, to do a true geneagram here. We'll be here all night, or all day and all night. But I do want to say two things about this list of names, two things that I think jump out at us that Matthew is communicating to us from this list. And the first, let's start with the very first two words that Matthew uses in this chapter, the very first two words of the New Testament. The two words, first two words of the New Testament are, I'm going to give them to you in Greek, Biblos Genesios, Biblos Genesios. Now, I know that most of you don't know any Greek, but I know that you're smart. And so I think you can kind of get what these words come from. Biblos genesios. Biblos. You know an English word that's related to that? Bibliography. What's a bibliography? It's a list of books. The word biblos means book. Genesios. Does that sound like an English word you've heard before? Genesis. Yes. It is related to the word Genesis. In fact, it is what you would call the genitive form of the word Genesis, which means it's the possessive form. So, in English, the first two words of the New Testament are the book of Genesis. First two words of the New Testament are the book of Genesis. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Did you know that? Did you know that the first two words of the New Testament were the book of Genesis? I confess 
that even though I've studied Scripture a long time, I did not realize until this week that those were the first two words. That can't be an accident. Matthew was trying to say something. The Holy Spirit is trying to say something. When the very first two words of God's second book is the name of the first book of his first book. Now, of course, that's not the way your pew Bible translates it, right? In your translation, it simply reads, this is the genealogy of. That's a good translation. The word Genesis can mean ancestry or genealogy. And I, so I think one of the things, there's two levels to Matthew's meaning here. One of the things Matthew means to say is, this is the genealogy of Jesus. But there's something else Matthew means to say. He wants to say, book of Genesis. Something new is starting. The promises, the things that, that God was doing in the Old Testament that God did when he said, let there be light, those things are being recapitulated, restarted, fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David. This is Genesis 2.0. Everything is about to change. God has not forgot his promises. God has not forgot his story. God has not forgot the thread of his things. Biblos Genesios. Something new is about to begin. The people who would have first heard that word from Matthew would have needed it. Israel was in a bad way when Jesus came. Israel had been a backward state, an oppressed state for almost 600 years. It all started all the way back when the Babylonians conquered them. So for a while, they're under the Babylonian boot. Then the Babylonians are replaced by the Persians. Then the Persians are replaced by the Greeks, and the Greeks are replaced by the Romans. 600 years of somebody ruling over you. So Israel had been small, poor, and powerless for as long as they could remember. And that would have gone exactly against the things they'd been told from their mother's knee. From their mother's need, they'd been told of the great promises of God, specifically the promises to Abraham and the promises to David. And what had God said to Abraham? God had said to Abraham, your people will be a great nation and all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. But, but they weren't a great nation. They were, geopolitically speaking, they were nobody for 600 years. God had promised to David that you will never fail to have one of your descendants sit on the throne in Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 7, right? You know that. You know that promise? One of your descendants, David, will always be king in Jerusalem, God tells David. Well, no son of David was a king in Jerusalem. Herod was king in Jerusalem, and he was not descended from David. Wherever David's descendants, they were just regular people trying to make a living. Farmers, shepherds, carpenters, regular Joes, regular Josephs. When Matthew says Biblos Genesis, these people feel like God maybe had lost the thread of the story. And they're at a point in their history where they're wondering, are those stories we heard on our mother's knee, were they real or was that just wishful thinking? Is that the kind of things our mothers tell us to make us feel good? Wishful thinking stories that we leave behind when we get older. Is that all those stories were? Because, man, none of them seem to be coming true. Into this disillusionment, 
Matthew says, Biblos Genesios. God has not forgotten his promises. Lift up your heads, people. I'm going to tell you about the Messiah, the son of David, he says in verse 1. The son of Abraham, the one who's going to fulfill those promises that you think are gone. Jesus is the beginning of something new. Everything is going to change. Maybe you're a person who's dealing with disillusionment as we start this Advent season. Maybe your life isn't following the thread that you were going to expect that it would follow. Your family was supposed to be a place of joy for you has become a place of conflict and stress. Your retirement was supposed to be this place where you would enjoy yourself and have a great time. Instead, you just feel like you're kicking around. You don't know what to do with yourself. You're going to doctor's appointments, taking pills. If you're one of those people who feels like you're not marching down the road of sanctification on your way to a better place, you're just stuck in a rut and spinning your wheels, if that's what it feels like to you, then Matthew says to you the same thing he said to his people 2,000 years ago, Biblos Genesios. You may have lost the thread of the story, but I promise you, God has not lost the thread of the story for you. God knows where you are. And he is able to light a candle of hope in the midst of your disillusionment, in the midst of your darkness. That's the first thing I want you to hear from this story. Biblos Genesios, the God who restarts his promises for disillusioned people. The second thing I want to focus on is the actual names in the genealogy itself. You need to know that in ancient times, uh, the Bible has genealogies in it, but genealogies weren't just a biblical thing. You would see genealogies in other literature. And the way ancients used genealogies was to establish their credentials. You made a genealogy to show the purity of your bloodline, that you came from pure ethnic descent, and that your people were excellent people, right? That you came from good stock, that you had heroes in your past. That's still the way we use genealogies today. You point to someone and you say, hey, there's Tom over there. You know Tom over there on his mother's side? He's descended from George Washington. Oh, wow, Tom, amazing. Well, your daughter's dating someone. Who's she dating? Doug Vandersma. Oh, the Vandersmas, they're good people. They're solid. His, his mom's dad taught at the University of Michigan and his dad's dad was the Reverend Hendrik Vandersmut, and he was an echte domine. Everybody liked him. And that's what we do, right? We, we connect and we, we, we talk about heritage. We, we give account of the goodness of the people we, who came before us. Jesus' genogram does not do that. Jesus' genogram does exactly the opposite. Jesus' genogram totally breaks with tradition because Jesus... Genogram, Matthew puts forward names that would evoke shame and disgrace. Jacob, a liar and a cheat. David, an adulterer and a murderer, as if one of those things weren't enough. Ahaz and Manasseh are on that list. Ahaz and Manasseh both sacrificed their children in the fire to pagan gods. They're on the list. Jehoram, Rehoboam, 
Abijah, they're all excoriated in the book of Kings as people who did not follow God's ways. And they're on the list. They're all on the list. And then there's the women. In his commentary on Matthew, Dale Bruner says, you didn't usually have women in genealogies in those days. It was a man's thing. You only had fathers and sons, and that's just how they rolled back then. The only time you would ever put a woman in a genealogy is if this woman was truly exceptional, if she somehow added luster to the descendant, okay? So if she'd done something amazing or if she was from a really high family, then you'd put a woman's name in there. And if Matthew had wanted to, there were four women in Israel's history that he could have used that would have added luster to Jesus' name, the four matriarchs. By this time, the four matriarchs of Judaism, which would have been Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah, those four women were celebrated. In fact, they're still celebrated in modern Judaism. If you go to Passover celebrations, sometimes they will sing about the four matriarchs. They'll lift them up. They're still regarded as these, these wonderful women, which they are. So if Matthew wanted, he could have put those four women in there, but he doesn't put those four women in there. He puts in four totally different women. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And they do not add luster. They evoke stories of sin and disgrace. Now, sometimes... People call those four women of Matthew's genealogy the four sinful women of the genealogy. I don't think that's fair um, because most of those women are not the sinners. There's only one who I think we can call a sinner, and that would be Rahab. She was a prostitute, and I think we can all agree that's wrong. So Rahab, being in Jesus' line as a prostitute, that would have been disgraceful. How could Matthew put that in there? Three of the other women were disgraced because they were foreigners. Remember I said genealogies are about purity of bloodline? And for Jewish people, read Ezra, that was important. But Matthew puts in there Ruth, who's from Moab, and Rahab, who's a Canaanite, and Bathsheba, who's a Hittite. Two of the women evoke shame, not because of what they did, but because their names remind us of what the men did. Bathsheba, for David with his adultery and his murder, and Tamar, in a lesser-known story, who shows us that Judah did not take care of his obligations to love and care for the closest members of his family and then slept with a prostitute. Matthew does not pick these names to show purity of bloodline and excellence of stock. Matthew picks these names to show that Jesus came from a family that was an unholy mess. In other words... Jesus came from a family that was a lot like mine and a lot like yours. Matthew shows that Jesus came from this kind of family because Matthew wants to tell you and to tell me that he can save family like ours. Matthew puts names like Ahaz and Manasseh and, and David in the line and lets Jesus' name be associated with them because he wants you to know that if, if, if Manasseh's name can be associated with Jesus, whatever it is that you've done, Jesus doesn't mind standing next to you. Matthew's approach to history is really interesting here. Just a little aside. When we do our histories of, of, of the people who came before us, we, we do two opposite things as a society. Either we like to shine up our history 
and make our ancestors uh, a little more excellent than they really were. We put a coat of lacquer on them so they look really great and we can make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We mythologize the past. That's one thing we do. Or sometimes we do the opposite. We make everybody in our past seem like a total disaster and the past is irredeemable and beyond restoration and just will be burned to the ground. Matthew, the Holy Spirit, follows neither of those two paths. Matthew tells the truth of the heroes and the villains, the messes, the successes. They're all put together because our hope does not depend on the excellence of our ancestors. Our hope is not destroyed by the failures of our ancestors. Our hope is in the Son of Jesus and Mary. Our hope is in Jesus Christ our Lord, who, as verse 21 says, is sent to this world to save people like us, people like this, from their sins. There's a place for anyone and everyone in this family. Like David's family, has your family been touched by sexual sin, by adultery? If that's you, there's a place in this family for you, and there's new hope for you in Jesus. Like Bathsheba and Tamar, are you the victim of abuse? Has some powerful person traumatized you in some way that still makes you limp. If that's you, there's a place for you in this family and there's new hope for you in Jesus. Like the people of Israel, are you worn out from promises that seem to go nowhere and hopes that seem to die? If that's you, there's a place for you in this family and there's new hope for you in Jesus. Welcome to Advent, people. The time when the darkness is deepest and where the light shines out in the darkness. Amen. Father, you know the places where our disillusionment lives. You know all the ways in which our lives are, are not working out the way we want and we're at wit's end. Lord, we know that when we hit a dead end, you are just beginning. Send your light and your truth to us this Advent and awaken our hopes, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.